Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On today's episode, we're joined by two IT visionaries from JP Morgan Chase, Munish Kumar and Sandra Nettleman. Munish is Vice President of Technology, and Sandra is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at JP Morgan Chase. In this episode, Munish and Sandra share insights about the relationship between data, customers, privacy, legacy systems, and agile innovation. They also discuss the impacts of GDPR, CCPA, and they share a few predictions about the future of technology and how it will impact business. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. Now, everyone can build apps. Salesforce and MIT recently teamed up to create a white paper that explores what happens when AI meets CRM. To get that white paper, tap or click the link in the show notes. And now, on to today's episode. Sandra, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Manish, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's get into your roles and responsibilities. Sandra, if you want to go first. So as the Chief Data and Analytics Officer, I've got the unique opportunity and responsibility to be looking at the end-to-end use of our data all the way through to the delivery of business impact. And that's inclusive of all of the upfront data quality and data governance through to how we actually structure the data and then downstream to how it's being analyzed and finally used to drive value. And how does that role kind of play into what Munish does on a day-to-day basis? So one of the biggest opportunities from our perspective in using data is to drive personalization of experience for our customers. And delivering personalization is a multifaceted problem of which one of the big pieces is actually the data, but there's also some foundational technology elements around just personalization of data that are important. And Munish is the primary tech partner to deliver personalization here at Chase. Awesome. And Munish, what's kind of the scope of your responsibilities? How much of Chase are you working with, so to speak, on a day-to-day basis? So it really is all of Chase retail in terms of customer base. So that's over 62 million customers. In terms of channels, it's across digital branch at this point. Great. So I kind of wanted to really talk about how you are doing data-centric customer personalization and talk about some of the advantage and some of the things that you're doing at Chase to really leverage technology and leverage those business partnerships. So What are the biggest challenges that you faced in the past few years? So from my perspective, one of the biggest early challenges that this work faced was that people were trying to deliver personalization in silos. So you had different people in marketing trying to do this from different people in digital and different people in operations, all trying to build fundamentally a similar set of platforms, but they weren't actually coordinating And when you think about our customers, our customers don't care about a specific channel or a specific line of business. They think of us as one chase. And so ensuring that when we say personalization, it's personalization from a chase perspective to a customer. That was one big thing up front that we had to deal with. But there were many others I'm sure Manish can add. Sure. Thank you, Sandra. And I think you asked a couple of questions there. You asked, you know, how are we managing the data-centric customer personalization? And then you also asked, you know, the challenges in there. I'd say it's as much a change management exercise as it's a technical challenge of building a customer dimension or a customer graph, as I call it, uh, in our attempt to reach out consistently back to our customers in a meaningful fashion through our other channels that we have. 
it is about building trust, starting small, proving value, and then expanding and scaling. And big data and modeling all comes into play, but later in the game. Foundation is about setting the vision and about reaching out to our customers in the most meaningful fashion. And of course, it means building the right data structures and the right data graphs, which are cross-channel across your customer width. But that doesn't mean that the dimension of product and account is lost. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but it's important to respect the domain of product in certain areas, well integrated with the dimension of customer as you interact with your customers in the channel. Yeah, what do you mean by customer graph? Can you describe that a little bit more in detail? Yeah, sure I can. Traditionally, the way we have had data, and I'm pretty sure this is across the financial industry, is structured in, as Sandra alluded to, in silos dominated by the product dimension, organized by the product, deposits, cards, mortgages, and so on and so forth. And while that's okay in certain areas, it is a hindrance and obstruction when you want to reach out to your customers and engaging them in your digital and brand channels. We want to have a customer 360 view, which we call as a customer graph, in order to have the most meaningful messages conveyed back to the customer. We want to know everything about them, or as much as we can know about them, in order to actually engage them in the right fashion. And that's what we mean by customer graph. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the privacy aspects a little bit later. But I think that this is really interesting. I mean, some people call it, you know, your 360 view. I like the idea of a graph because it kind of shows that visual nature of it. What type of systems are you using to track that? And how are you transforming those legacy systems from that kind of account-based or product-focused look to more of a customer-focused approach? I'm going to have my friend and colleague here, Sandra, get into that. But let me start by saying both the dimensions are equally important. So I'm going to keep saying that, reiterating that, because just because we are looking at building customer graphs or we are building customer graphs and have started to deploy them does not mean that, as we call the accounting and the product-based systems as legacy, need to disappear. There is an absolute need for them to coexist and, in fact, the architecture to integrate and support the communication between them. What I really mean is your origination processes could still go through what you have in your product-based systems. The need is to actually build a graph for the customer across the product group in such a way that when that origination process needs to interact with the customer graph, it can, and vice versa. So I don't think they need, you know, I think they complement well each other, they don't need to replace. In terms of technologies we are using, we are early adopters of technology suites in this space from open source technologies like Cassandra and Duke, et cetera, in order to store our data. And then we have well thought out domain-driven design implemented through microservices in order to actually interact with our customers across our channels. And I think what Manish is saying is really important I often find that people, when they hear about trying to drive towards customer centricity, they think that there's a need to decommission a lot of the old legacy systems. And that's not entirely true. There is so much in there that is driving existing processes that are doing fine exactly as they are. So the point is, how do you build the right infrastructure on top of that or overlays in terms of either technology or decision rules, whether those are just business guidelines or models? so that you can create that real, personally relevant, customer-centric experience, irrespective 
and almost detached from what is in the underlying infrastructure. Customers ultimately don't care how we organize the data. They care about the experience. And so if we can deliver the right experience without actually going back and performing massive surgery, that's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, I mean, how much at the end of the day is the customer feeling from this? And obviously, Chase is in tons of households and tons of retail locations and all of that. And I don't know if you can share how many app users or things like that. But obviously, there's a ton of scale there with the impact of what you're doing. How much is the customer aware of those things? And like, what types of messaging are you sharing with them? As we think about messaging, I think what's really critically important about the way we've scoped this effort is this isn't just about selling. And in fact, when you look at how our customers want us to interact with them, what they really want is Chase to be their trusted advisor and for us to have their back. And so the goal, in fact, of a lot of this entire transformation has been to say, how do we think about creating an intake, not just for messages related to what the next best credit card or the next best Sapphire banking product is, for instance, but also talk about different types of insights or nudges that can help the customer with their day-to-day financial fitness and just improve their well-being from that perspective, as well as just basic servicing messaging and making sure that when we say personalized messages and the right message for the right customer, it isn't fundamentally just trying to sell something. I totally agree. The motto that we have is to help our customers make the most of their money. And scale is always a challenge here, of course, because Chase being the biggest bank in the country in many dimensions, with over 48 million active digital users, it is a dimension that we have to respect, and our architecture does do a very good job of doing that. In terms of its impact to the customer, it certainly is there in how we architect our solutions, but the key message is how relevant we make our interaction back to the customer in the context of what they're doing with us and within their own life. And that's what Sandra just explained. So part of it is servicing and part of it could be offers personalized to the customer. And actually what I love about what Manish just said is he put a call out into just our architecture. And it's funny because I know how much time he and our architecture team spend thinking about what exactly our model is going to be in order to deliver all of the things we try to do in a way that is resilient and stable and respects the scale of our customer base So it's not exactly something I spend a ton of time on because I know I've got these great subject matter experts supporting me on it. But I do think just more broadly, business stakeholders, where I consider myself part of the business, I don't think people spend as much time as they should really understanding the implications of architectural decisions and making sure they build deep partnerships through into technology to really understand that because architecture has longstanding implications for the things you're going to deliver far beyond just one incremental application build. And what's the time horizon that you're building for that stuff? Are you looking at implementing things that are lasting for 10 years? What type of time horizons for those technologies, you know, understanding that you need to remain agile? And I mean, I guess the agile question is really something we can talk about now or a little bit later. But, you know, it seems to me like some of those things are changing so rapidly right now that it might be difficult to plan for. That's why I'll answer with my more simplistic business perspective on this, and then I'm sure Manish can add. But my view is, is that we need to try to do this as modularly as possible with lots of connection points so that we future-proof ourselves. We don't want to get ourselves into the problems that predecessors in the past, who, to be frank, didn't necessarily have other options, did in building monoliths that then it takes years and years to decommission. 
So even as we were thinking about personalization and building for the future, we didn't take a bet on what channel we needed to integrate with. We are working to integrate with all of our current channels, but the way we're thinking about it is we know that there's future channels that are coming into play and we are actively working to get ready for them irrespective and to make sure everything is plug and play. So we're trying to future-proof as best we can. I mean, in reality, you asked what's the time horizon. I don't think we're good stewards if we're not building for a minimum of a five-year horizon, but trying to aspire for 10 to the extent that certain components should last that long. I think the key point, Sandra, just you said, certain components are going to last longer than the others. And that's exactly what your architecture should allow for. And I keep going back to it. I think I mentioned it earlier. If we have thought through it right, if we've applied domain thinking on our data and services, then it would last that long as what Sandra just mentioned. Also, it's worthwhile remembering that some of the channels could be new. The way we collect our data from our customers can change. What's very unlikely to change that fast is how we interact with that data and distribute it out. That can live for five years for sure. Assuming we have built into architecture a modular design of how we plug into that data and how do we actually keep our channels well-organized, not building too close to a specific channel. While it's important to build closer to the edge, it's also important to understand when you're actually building for multiple channels, some of which exist today and the new ones that are going to come, where do you draw that line to maintain the flexibility across them? Case in point, branch and digital. Messages have to go in both the dem- on both the channels. One is assisted channel, the other one is unassisted. How do you actually distribute that data out? What's your strategy? But the engineering, the brain of decision-making doesn't necessarily need to get too close to either of them. So as you're managing this shift towards the data-centric customer personalization, how are you tracking impact of that? For lack of a better word, key performance indicators, what are the things that you're doing to track that impact from the customer? I mean, is that as simple as like net promoter scores or is that more of a product function? Like how are you tracking how you communicate and like contextually communicate with your customers? I mean, it's very dependent on both the channel and the objective of the communication. And so if you think about it, what we'd expect in terms of a KPI off of the messages that we send into the branch, because it's, as Manish said, an assisted channel, are going to be very different than what we look for in digital. In digital, you can tell if things are relevant to a customer if they are engaging with that content, are they clicking on it? Are they doing something different as a result? If we're giving them nudges to save more money, do we see that activity in their bank accounts in subsequent months? Do we see that they're starting to live up to those directions? And so I think we look at it dependent on all of those different factors by channel and then by objective. And then how do you do that as you manage privacy? Like obviously with GDPR and CCPA, there's a huge focus on this. How are you managing the customer's experience and being able to personalize that with the challenges of making sure that you know privacy is being upheld? So that's part of my day job is actually making sure that we deliver on the expectations of our customers, both from a privacy perspective, but even more broadly than that, we care about what we call data use, which is even if data is aggregated or de-identified, we actually are really monitoring where it's going, how it's being used, and making sure that we believe it's the right thing to do. In terms of the specifics, GDPR was not 
a heavy focus for Chase as a bank because we don't have a big footprint in Europe. So it only impacted certain sublines of business for us. But obviously, CCPA, the California Privacy Act, is something that we're heavily focused on. As we knew it was coming down the pipe, uh, we actually initiated a whole host of customer research to really understand how our customers think about this, to make sure that the bar we set for ourselves is the bar they would set for us as well. And I think what we heard is that customers do want us to be more relevant to them. In fact, a lot of them say, you have all this data. Why aren't you helping me more with with some of my day-to-day financial needs? And so what we really think is going to be the key here in the spirit of what the Privacy Act is getting at is customers deserve transparency in how data is being used. We don't disagree. We think that's a great idea. We also think that customers deserve a choice in how that data is being used. And as long as customers feel like they have a say, they know what's going on, and they have choice in the matter, they mostly want their data to be used to make their lives simpler or to give them better value. As a bank, and more broadly, even I think for our industry, that we are really trying to do the right thing for our customers on this dimension. So switching gears here to talk agile, I think there's a lot of times where working in a really big organization kind of feels like you're the large ship, right? And you want to be more like a bunch of speedboats running around because it's tough to turn the big ship sometimes. How are you using Agile and kind of managing that partnership with business and technology? I mean, one of the big themes so far in IT Visionaries is really just seeing how industry-leading companies are looking at business and how technology serves that. Like, how are you looking at Agile with that partnership? From my viewpoint, it doesn't necessarily have to be how the business is looking at things and how technology serves it. In fact, that's actually evident in the way we function here and our teams function. I think the starting point is setting a vision and making sure that everybody across business, technology, and perhaps even operations in certain cases is bought into it. So if you have a vision, you have a purpose, then it actually comes down to understanding the scope of what you want to put out as a minimally viable product out in that domain. Sandra alluded to customer research, and we are certainly very big on domain thinking and doing customer research before we dive deep. Setting the vision, defining the minimally viable product, and then discussions and decisions around prioritization need to be very sound and data-driven and as much as possible. So you are launching MVPs out into the customers after getting feedback. I didn't know that. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, that's how we're building more and more of our products. That's exactly what we did with the recent deployment of our tools in the branches, and we continue to do that in our digital channels, servicing channels. It's foundational to how we think, to gather customer feedback, iterate, and then improve along the way. But then once you have it, the foundation still is building trust learning along the way, and improving your squads, your tribes as you deliver. And transparency and delivery is a key aspect of building your trust. And I think for me, I loved what Manish said about starting with the vision, because to me, the vision, both from the business perspective, as well as marrying that with a target state architecture perspective, having a start to that up front, it doesn't mean that those things won't change over time, but having that holistic view is a critical enabler to doing agile at scale. Agile for one team, you know, even just with partnership between business and technology for one squad or one scrum team to run is actually pretty simple to execute. The problem arises when you've got five of those or 10 of those or 20 of them that are delivering on 
separate underlying products that still integrate into a whole, how do you enable those to work in parallel while still ensuring that they've got the right autonomy and speed? And by having that consistent upfront view where we've got the vision from the architectural perspective, the vision on the impact from the business perspective, then you let your underlying teams, you structure and scope the underlying products in such a way that they can be mostly independent, but it's clear where some of those interdependencies are, you're then allowing them to run. And so that's something that I think a lot of folks are missing thus far is thinking through how you actually enable this stuff at scale. It starts very much in the beginning of the program. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And how are you getting those ideas? Are you seeking bottom-up refinement from folks on the ground? Are you developing that innovation amongst your teams? Like, How do you foster that culture of rapid innovation with an agile mindset? I think the upfront vision, really, it's been Manish and I driving that target. And then we enable the underlying teams to run. And I think the partnership you see between Manish and I is mirrored in every one of those squads or scrum teams underneath where you've got joint accountability against both what are they trying to do and how are they trying to get there. Everyone feels equally that they need to actually understand the underlying user set or the underlying functionality and drive towards something better on consistent improvement. I just want to mention, we do have help in terms of coaches available to us. So that's absolutely there. And we do continue to learn our lessons, bottom up as well, and then apply them across But the vision has always been there. We know it's going to grow in scale. We know we would have multiple squads working together. We know we would have to apply models like LIS, et cetera. So while we are watching our KPIs coming out of our agile journey and automation journeys, because I don't think you can really be truly be agile without automating significantly, uh, certainly your aspects of testing and deployments and so on and so forth. But there is a notion of respecting the autonomy of the squads setting the domains of how they operate and how they operate amongst themselves. So we've been very careful in watching and learning our lessons, working with our coaches and getting better in that space. And is that how you're bringing new technology? Like, are you having conversations about buy or build or are you figuring out those things internally to try to bring new technology? Yeah, so that's something from a business perspective, I think we hadn't had great discipline on in the past. And it's something that I think this partnership brings to bear. I think business's responsibility is to bring a view of what are the things we are trying to solve for and why they're important. And then I really look to my technology partners, whether it's Manisha's team or him calling on other tech strategy, specialty groups or architecture to say, given what we're trying to accomplish in that particular you know, problem statement I raise, given the broader set of things we're trying to do as a company or even as a firm, what is the right answer for us? And there's usually a host of different competing priorities from a technology standpoint, and they come back and usually are able to help us identify what the best solution is. I will say something that is from my perspective that pushes the needle on this a little bit is what you mentioned earlier around just all of the increasing focus from a regulatory perspective on just privacy and in general data use. The more I can understand where data is going and how it is being used, that is beneficial to me with my governance hat on. And so that does push me towards more in-house solutions lately than actual buying. Fully agreed with that. We have a fairly sophisticated process here within Chase, both between IT and business, especially IT architecture, as to how we make those decisions when it comes to build versus buy. Now, we are very open to partnering with service providers, very open to partnering with product developers, 
But at the end of the day, it needs to fit into our vision of what we are trying to achieve and the architecture we have built around it. And as long as that happens and we can, as Sandra mentioned, we can manage the data in a very transparent manner, we are very open to working with partners. The key thing is knowing what are you trying to solve, the vision of that product. Now, knowing our scale and knowing once we've actually brought a product in and it fits into our architectural vision, we then partner very closely with the product division of that specific product and where they're planning to take it versus where our objectives take us. And that journey has to be very well aligned because there could be a need that a product can solve today if it's going to move at a tangent to what our objectives are and how we want to service our customers. That would be one of the factors going against a buy decision. So as long as various things that we consider are aligned, and data use being a primary one of them, but there are many others, we are very open to working with partners. And clearly, like the business partnership is so strong here that you're even on the podcast together. But I mean, kind of talk about that relationship and how you view the strength of the business to technology partnership. Because and I know we touched on it a little bit before, but specifically with both of you, I mean, I think that this is something unique and obviously fun to do for IT visionaries to have you both on. But also, I think it kind of goes to the deeper kind of relationship of how you view that the business technology partnership. So I think that in a lot of cases, you know, especially when folks aren't working in agile, technology is treated as a partner that you hand a 60 page requirements document to, you assign a project manager to check up on them, who gives you a red, yellow, green, and six months later, everyone gets in a room and is disappointed because what was delivered wasn't actually what you wanted. I think Manish and I just have a strong partnership based in just trust and understanding. And he has a strong understanding of what our business wants and needs. And he has been building in me an understanding of the value that technology delivers. And so as you think about moving towards that agile model, instead of that throwing requirements over the wall, you know, he and I are in this together. If we succeed, we both succeed. If we fail, we're both going to fail together. And I think that's led to a very different way of approaching the work from top to bottom and across our teams. Can't agree more. The foundation of the relationship is trust and how we work with each other. Of course, it's easier with some as it's been with Sandra, and it could be a little more challenging in certain other areas, but the essential ingredients of the relationship are still the same. It's trust, transparency, and working in a collaborative fashion. In this case, we realized very quickly that we have many challenges that we'll encounter and to tackle. And we need to be extremely agile and transparent in how we execute. And that's exactly how we went about doing our business here. It's also important to understand that technology doesn't always need to consider itself as an enabler. It is an enabler. It can also be a leader in certain areas. Same goes for business. A good understanding of the architecture in the business area only helps them see things differently. So it's widening the horizon of how you look at your respective discipline is a critical ingredient of a successful relationship. So we got a few minutes left here, and we want to get into lightning round. So are you ready? I am. I don't know. Should I be? (laughs) Those were all the softball questions, but these really are the softball questions because these are faster and easier, just like the lightning platform by Salesforce, which makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. 
Fast and easy questions. What's better than that, right? Fast and easy is great. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Chase Retail. Oh, you can't. That doesn't count. You got you to have a new one. But that's great. Shout out to the Chase Retail app. Boggle with friends. Boggle. I love Boggle. Right? You want to play me? I'll give you my username after this. <laughs> yeah, don't share it on air. Get thousands of requests. What is your favorite time-saving tool? To-do lists. Do not disturb. That's a great one. The airplane mode on my phone is one of the best. How about favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? There have been some great ones by some of the retailers I use for customer service that have been fantastic, like text to chat with customer service. Manish, do you have a favorite chatbot? Yes. I mean, Alexa is a great example of what it can be. There are many others who are you know, pushing the envelope. I'd say you'd see some of our own offering in this space pretty soon. In terms of AI, we've seen in weather predictions, I think Watson is a great example of that. And we keep our eyes on everything that's happening in the market to make sure that we are looking at the rapidly evolving ecosystem around us and we can respond to it. How about favorite team, sports or otherwise? I like Broadway musicals. I'm not a sports person as much. Yeah, that's great. In terms of sports, I'd follow tennis the most. So Roger Federer is a favorite. How about favorite podcast or recent book that you've read? That's easy. Mission IO. The Culture Code. I referred to the podcast, you referred to the book, so you got both. <laughs> Final question. What's your favorite one-day getaway in the New York City area? I don't know if part of Jersey counts, but I'd say the Jersey Shore. Yeah, that counts. I like eating, so anywhere where I can get really, really fine dining in New York is an escape for me, which there's a lot of, so I'm very lucky. I love it. That's it. That's it for the lightning round. See, fast and easy. Just like the lightning platform by Salesforce, because with Salesforce, building apps is everyone's business. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. All right, that's it. That's all we got. Thanks again for hanging out. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps.